I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. Over the past 10 years, an unlikely experiment unfolded in the Southeast Asian country of Myanmar, or Burma, where a repressive military dictatorship has been in power since 1962. In 2010, Aung San Suu Kyi, the prominent Burmese pro-democracy activist and Nobel Peace Laureate, was released after years of house arrest. Crowd of noisy supporters had waited hours for this moment. We're so glad now that she's released, said this woman. It's like the moon came out and we saw the light. Under international pressure, the military initiated reforms and allowed parliamentary elections. Suu Kyi returned to the political stage. Though she was barred from the presidency, she was chosen as state councillor, essentially the prime minister, in 2016. But last February, the military struck back and overthrew Aung San Suu Kyi in a coup after her party, the National League for Democracy, won a resounding electoral victory. The streets erupted in mass protests. By some estimates, soldiers have killed more than 800 Burmese citizens and detained as many as 4,000. Just this week, several protesters were struck and killed when an army truck sped into a crowd. Banging pots and pans from their windows in Yangon, residents paid tribute to those killed. Now, a once peaceful movement has turned to paramilitary operations against the regime. The United Nations is warning of a brewing civil war, even as a new and more ethnically diverse shadow government is operating in exile. Aung San Suu Kyi, now 76 and frail, has been sentenced to four years in prison. In a closed trial this week, a special court convicted her of incitement and of COVID violations. She still faces other trumped-up charges of corruption and fraud, so she could be sentenced to more than 100 years in prison. Still, protesters and activists remain committed to restoring democracy in Burma. Well, today we're honored to have with us in our studio one of those activists, Mio Yanong Thane. Mio Yan has been a leader in Burma's struggle for democracy for a quarter century and recently served as a chief research officer in Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy. He had to be smuggled out of Myanmar earlier this year and is now here at the University of Virginia, where he's a visiting researcher and member of the Democratic Futures Working Group. Mio Yan? Thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy in Danger. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk as well. So you have a gripping, haunting story to tell us about your escape from Myanmar just this past spring. Would you please recount that story? Tell us what you went through. So I was in hiding for three months. The military on the day of the coup came and searched for me at home. But fortunately, I was away from my mother's funeral. So I escaped. So every day of my hiding, there was risk that me being found and killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, military, they like to give public the message of fear. When they find somebody, they not simply kill, they torture. They open up chest and take off the interiors and send back the dead bodies home. The situation was very bad. Oh. At that point, a group at the border called 
Free Bomber Rangers, the American veterans. I got in touch with these guys and they smuggled me out of Burma from Capital City. It is two days travel. It was a very dangerous trip. If they find me, they will come on the spot. And fortunately, the, you know, the ranger group sent a very good ranger. He could find ways in the jungle to get to the border area. Nevertheless, I was caught two times by the soldiers. And fortunately, they couldn't recognize me. Hmm. I was in, in disguise, me with my wife, you know, so we escaped. So this rangers group, tell us more about them. They are veteran soldiers from the United States, and oh. they are like missions. They are like Christian missionaries there, and they are saving people. They saved me. They heard the news from me, from my friend from Thailand. Then he said that I was in danger. I was about to be found and killed. So they, they made that very dangerous trip. Oh, now, my. Can you tell us, uh, our listeners, a little bit about your role in Burma in the National League for Democracy. What were you doing and how close were you to that political organization? Actually, uh, you know that in 1988, there was national uprising, national protest against the military coup, military gender. And they made election in 1990, in which National League for Democracy won last like victory. However, they never hand over power, saying that the constitution needed to be drafted. In military, they drafted constitution unilaterally, and there was complete oppression within Myanmar. In 1996, I was a student. I led a student demonstration against the military regime. And for that, I was arrested and put in prison for seven years. It was my first time in prison. Then I was out of prison in 2003, then resumed my struggle for democracy. In 2007, I was arrested again and put in prison for two years. At the end of 2009 and beginning of 2010, I was released. Then, months later, Aung San Suu Kyi was released and I got in contact with her. And she asked me to work for her and I became the secretary for research and strategy studies. In that position, I'm in charge of information, research and strategy of the party. Hmm. There was a central committee. I'm like the, the boss of the central committee. Okay, so it's 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 astounding your commitment to democracy after so much pain and pressure, uh, so many close calls. When we met earlier, uh, we had met at the statue of Thomas Jefferson, and as we walked by the buildings that Thomas Jefferson had designed, you told me that you had originally thought you would be an architect, that you had taken a degree in architecture, and that Thomas Jefferson was an inspiration. To you. Can you tell us where did you get this commitment to democracy? How was that influential for you? My journey of democracy began when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Then I studied English. I went to the American Center mm-hmm. in Rangon. I like the place because it is very tidy and air conditioned. You can imagine a boy about 12 years old being at the library, reading, you know, books, and I feel it very good. So I began to read American history, constitution, and the founders of the nation. So I got fascination of other founders, especially Thomas Jefferson, because I, you know, I, I love art. I love languages. I love art. I found that he is a great guy because he loves art and he's a politician at the same time. <laughs> I learned that he did 33 different jobs in his <laughs> lifetime. So Thomas Jefferson, and Ephraim Hellencorn, these were the guys who inspired me a lot. 
And the first thing is the constitution of journalistics of America. Yeah. Where I'm just thinking, what is different? Then I find that if we can change the constitution, mm. so that we can make a country like journalistics, it'd be great. That's my very first talks about politics and constitution and changing the country. Yeah. And Thomas Jefferson has fascination where he drafted the Declaration of Independence and signed, you know? So I don't know where, whether there is destiny in life, but I always, in my childhood, thought about University of Virginia and Thomas Jefferson, and not hoping that I would one day be in University of Virginia near the statue of Thomas Jefferson Rotenda. Ah. Well, let me invite you to come back to your story of leaving Burma. So you were in Thailand for a while, is that right? Yeah. And then what did you do there and how did you come to University of Virginia? You know, I there was a moment when we crossed the border. I mean, it was the moment that we knew that we would live. Before that point, we never knew what time we would be caught and arrested and, and killed. Then we were in Thailand, South border city. And stay, we are not safe there because the military sent about 15 intelligence assassins. So our friends in Bangkok suggested us to leave the border area. Then the United States Embassy helped us to get here on parole visa. Um, so do you still have family in Burma? Uh, do you and your wife worry about their conditions? Are you worried that being known as an activist puts them in danger? Yes, we have our, you know, my wife have her parents and her siblings there. I have my sister in Rangoon. Of course, we worry because the military regime, they are killing, they are arresting and killing relatives if they cannot find the one they want. Mm -hmm. So we are very worried about our families back home. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, thinking about our audience who has read about the Burma crisis in the newspapers, but we don't know much about Burma. What are the things that we should know? What are the basic uh, characteristics of the country? Why has democracy struggled for so long, really, since, uh, since independence from Britain? And despite military rule for many, many years, there is this spirit of resistance. Can you just try to illuminate, paint a picture of Burma, both its military forces, but also this this democracy movement that seems to be many, many years long. Yeah, Burma got independence from Britain in 1948. At that period, we have two primary issues facing Myanmar. One is federal issue, because in Burma, we, we have majority Burmese and ethnic minorities. Because we trying in a rush to get independence, we did not prepare properly to get independence. That was the very origin of all the issues we are facing nowadays. And in 1948, of course, there was the Cold War period. Mm -hmm. So the ideological crisis also happened in Myanmar. So with independence, we have two issues. One is at the minority issue, there's federal issue, and ideological issue. There's the communist revolution. Then with that, military got stronger. Actually, communism, there was some insurgency, communist insurgency, but it was not very strong. So the main problem is the ethnic minorities problem, the federal problem. And the military said that the union would be would be disintegrated. Yeah. So in the name of saving the union, they made coup in 1962. It was the first reason they're making. There was no proper reason that union would break up. I see. So the military was was saying 
that the country was going to break apart yeah. because of ethnic differences. That was their excuse. Yes, of for course. Taking, and at the time, wasn't the president the father of Aung San Suu Kyi? Yeah, actually, the, the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, he was the, the independence hero. Ah. But he was assassinated before independence, oh, just before independence. Ah, but I'm he confused. arranged everything. Yeah, He arranged everything. He made sure that Bama got independence. You know, a father of Aung San Suu Kyi, General Aung San, he, you know, everybody in Myanmar, we love him. He's our hero. Actually, he's the one who founded the Myanmar army, but he was assassinated. So after his assassination, there were new commander-in-chief for the army. So they made a coup. In fact, they just won power. Yes. The general Nguyen, the then commander-in-chief of Bami's army, he ruled the country under the name of socialism. Ah. He founded the party called Bami's Way to Socialism, and he ruled the country for 26 years. And after 26 years, Bama became one of the least developed countries. So, 1988, the, the whole country revolted against the Bami Socialist Party, the military party. Then there was another military takeover. The next generation of military leaders, they ruled the country from 1988 to 2010, during which they drafted the constitution. So, they drafted the constitution for more than 15 years. Then, 2010, they transferred power to civilian government, but... All these civilians are recently retired generals. Mm. So they made their own party, Union Solidarity Party. And they made election in 2010, and the election was very fraudulent, and they won. In 2015, Aung San Suu Kyi competed and won landslide victory. NLD made fundamental changes, like fighting against corruption and democratic changes. So military was very afraid. In 2020, there was another election. NLD won. Last night, victory bigger than 2015. That time, military, they made another coup. Myanmar people, they were under military rule for more than 50 years. They couldn't stand, you know, the oppression anymore. So they started to fight back. For more than 50 years, the struggle was always peaceful. This time, at the very first stage of the revolution, or of the protest, we call that Supreme Revolution. At the very first stage, very first weeks of the Supreme Revolution, revolution was very peaceful. And everybody, every citizen of Myanmar, hoping that UN and US would came in Burma and save people. But when military started killing, they started killing hundreds of people. Burmese people, they said, okay, this is not time to protest peacefully, but to fight back. Right. So they, they fight back with machine weapons. They. Yeah. So now we have fighting everywhere in Myanmar. Yeah. In every township, there are public defense forces. They are with their own rifles fighting back the military. Mm. I see. Let me ask a question about the, the military. So we've looked at a number of countries, a number of regimes that uh, have undemocratic forms of government. Um, one typical model is a sort of an autocratic individual who comes to power and then tries to secure more power and creates a cult of personality around him. These figures are all over the world right now, from Putin in Russia to uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil to Erdogan in Turkey. That doesn't seem to be the case in Burma. There's not a cult of personality around one person. But at the same time, there's no longer an ideology. The ideology of socialism is gone with the Cold War. Um, what is holding this 
regime together? What are the sources of its power? The military, of course, there was personal cut, General Nguyen, you know, very beginning. What is what is making, you know, military in power is they they share the resources of Burma within the top generals. You know, they act as if they own the country. They own the country and they share the country together with top generals. And they put fear in the lower levels. Like in army, fear is everywhere. So they put fear not only in military, but also in the civilian. Yeah. So they rule by fear and also, you know, their, their self-interest, yeah. their greed. The c- corruption is really the glue that holds this oh, military exactly. regime together. But the original original justification for the coup was to hold the country together despite its ethnic differences and ethnic diversity, right? Um, But in recent years, 2016, 2017, we've seen the military reinvigorate that fear, right? With its crackdown, its genocide against the Rohingya people in Rakhine state. So is this a continuation of the same idea or is it some new set of issues? You know, after all these years, people don't believe anymore that country will be disintegrated. Mm. So now they make another fear that Buddhism would disappear from Burma. Right. You know, Burma is majority Buddhist. With 9-11, they have given message to Buddhist population in Myanmar that Muslims are infiltrated into Burma, making Burma into a Muslim country. Mm. So they make a story. Not many people believe that, but they're a certain portion like one person of population, and they can truly make their soldiers believe. They can make some of the Buddhist monks believe. Right. Although they are making a big line, there are still some people who believe these stories. So it's just an an effort to create an an internal enemy, to to create cohesion in the country. Exactly. And fear. So, but Aung San Suu Kyi uh, stood in front of the International Court of Justice in The Hague, and she defended the soldiers and the military leaders who had carried out the atrocities against the Rohingya and driven so many people into Bangladesh, into India, uh, and and into misery. So how could she have done this? I mean, this is a woman who had stood for human rights for so long. How does she justify her actions? Well, as a person walking close to her, mm. I think her, her real intention is, you know, she liked to solve the problem. Piece mm. by piece, mm. step by step. She seemed to have decided to make reconciliation with the military first. And that was solve a big part of the problem in Myanmar. So I think she made mistake in that. She never should have trusted military uh, should be tamed. Okay. She made huge mistake. I see, I see. Well, uh, you're, you've been here in the United States for a little while, and I wonder what you think about what role the United States could play or should play in supporting democracy in Burma, is it doing enough? Could it do more? Or is sometimes American participation a problem because it fulfills the fears of the military that outsiders are interfering? You know, military, they are always playing with the international community. The military, they they play with the Cold War mm-hmm. during the Cold War period. That's why they make themselves Socialist Party. And the same that they make alliance with the United States yeah. by showing the United States that they fought the communist rebellion. So they play very well with international politics. But I think United States is doing enough or not is a big question. You know, everybody is saying that they would attack Burma like they, they attack Iraq. 
So it, it is like everybody's hope in Myanmar. It would be very great if that could happen. But of course, there are a lot of challenges, you know? So in prison, we are in a small cell, about eight feet and 10 feet, in which we have almost nothing. One blanket and the floor that is all concrete. So we try to smuggle in a radio that can cost me at least 20 years more in prison. Why I put the radio? Because I want to listen to news. Every day what we listen is international pressure. So I mean, international reaction is very important for Obama. And I want people in the United States to know that when we suffer, we shout, US please help. We never shout, you know, China please help. We never shout, you know, Japan please help or Europe please help. Most of the time we shout, US please help. So I mean, that shows that US is playing a good role in saving human rights and justice. And the United States should live up to the standard mm-hmm. of people hope. So I think, you know, democracy is really in danger in South Asian and South Asian countries. We need more, more effort to uphold democracy in these countries as well. What are you doing with yourself now? I understand you're doing some writing, some teaching. Does this give you a, an opportunity to think through uh, your ideas, to try to reach a, a broader audience in the United States? Yeah, we as UVA, University of Virginia, we founded a group called Bami's Democratic Futures Working Group. So that group is making research analysis in order that politicians around the globe could understand Bama better. So we hope that we can explain to international community more about what happened in Bama. And we can clarify some misunderstanding about what happened in Bama. Where do you take hope? When you look at Burma and you look at the next few years, what gives you hope about the chances of Burma returning to some version of democracy? So now the public response is very huge. Mm. Of course, there was now a sort of armed struggle against the military, and I personally am struggle because, of course, there are more possibility that, that we win in a short term compared to peaceful protests. Because peaceful protests, they can kill easily, but Amstrike, they cannot kill easily. And moreover, so we have that whole nation fighting against one person of population in Burma. So we have high tendency that we win. But the risk is aftermath of the revolution. So what we have in Myanmar, we have all townships. We have military groups, that you know, the, the defense groups with their arms. So after the struggle, there would be high possibility that it will be very difficult to control them. So it is a big question how we can start our initiative, how we can make our attempt, you know, to make these forces in Myanmar to understand what about human rights, justice, and all these, you know, things they should know. I think it is very important for international community to right away to engage in that affair. So we have high opportunity because the whole country is fighting back. So, of course, the military is well equipped. In the long run, it will be very difficult for the military to control the whole nation. Moreover, so the National Unity Government, now the Paris government, it was the, the government out of the NRD and other the minorities group formation alliance. So that National Unity Government is widely supported by all the population. So... 
They hide the tendency that we are winning, but the aftermath of the struggle is very challenging. An armed struggle can make matters more difficult after the initial victory. Then putting the country back together might be more difficult than if you pursued your struggle through peaceful means. That's true. But at the same time, you need to engage with this powerful military、uh, regime, and so that's a real dilemma. Do you feel that there is some、uh, breaking away of perhaps young people inside the armed forces or、uh, different factions in the military that might start to fall away, and and that would be the beginning of a collapse? Ah,、uh, it's very hard. Fear is the culture of the Myanmar military,、mm. and that's the main reason why they are losing the war. You know, they they dare not make any initiative. They are afraid of everything. So it is very hard that military will disintegrate. Of course, the soldiers are not very happy, not at all happy. But at the same time, they dare not even speak out that they don't like the military, out of out, simply out of fear of reprisals. Yeah, yeah. Mio, you 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 seem comfortable in the United States. Clearly, you're grateful that you are safe. You've been through hardships. You and your wife faced almost. Death and torture in the process of getting here, and yet your love for your country is so deep and so clear. How does it feel for you to be in exile? What does it mean to do your job in exile? Actually, I never thought in my life that I would leave my country.、Mm. It is very hard. And the last moment, I decided not to leave my country.、Mm. But my my friend suggested me to leave the border area. Okay, I said border area. Then it stay in my country. Then at the border area, you know what? The military came and bombarded the area. So the the people in the area said, "Of course you are here." So they came bombarded. So villages were destroyed because of my presence. Of course, I have to leave、yeah. the area again.、Yeah. Then into Thailand. Then in Thailand, I I I try to install myself. But again, the military intelligence they send people to kill me. So the the embassy suggested me not to stay there. So finally, I have to decide to leave. If Thailand is is closer to Burma, it's better for me. So while I'm okay now, frankly speaking, I'm very happy. There's no single moment I do not think of my country. Every moment I'm free, I read the news and write about my country. So I mean, I hope that I could return back to my country one day. Yeah. So I have one other question that speaks to my personal interest. What do you think of the role of Facebook in Myanmar these days? There are many pros and cons、mm. about Facebook that both sides are using and abusing Facebook. Of course, you know a lot of incitement are made during the you know, Rohingya crisis. Yeah, you know, like you know, military extremists they spread rumors about you know a village being raped by Muslim gangs. Right. That that make you know people angry. So. We are using, you know, the same Facebook to spread information. So, Facebook in Myanmar is both pros and cons. Right, of course. But you can't live without it, right? Yeah, it's the main social media in Myanmar. So, because we are far from official media, yeah, we have only one outlet left. That is social media. But we are trying to make people the good information. I forget to tell you that. You know, one of the reasons we make 
Bomma Democratic Futures Working Group mm-hmm. is about social media. Mm. Because military is spreading lots of rumors in social media that it is important that we give people the right information. So we need a lot of effort. And I think we are successful working at it because people across Bomma are very united. And at the same time, we need to make Facebook very clear of misinformation. Well, Myoyang Naotain, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy in Danger. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about my country and introduce my country to the audience. Well, we wish you the best in your struggle. Myoyan Naungthane is a visiting researcher in the University of Virginia's English department, and he also has support from our parent organization, the Democracy Initiative. He's a leader in Myanmar's National League for Democracy and a founder of the Baida Institute, which trains newly elected Burmese leaders in good governance. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back. Well, I, uh, I'm overwhelmed by that story. Uh, you know, uh, Milian is one of the people we have been so fortunate to speak to who has lived democracy, uh, bled democracy. Uh, you know, he's, he's put his body on the line. He has taken every risk imaginable to support this ephemeral idea, but also to support a better life for his family and his country. There's no question being in his presence today was uh, was moving and powerful. And I think you just get a sense both of his courage, but also his optimism. Right. And you have to ask yourself, how can you maintain optimism in the face of such long odds? Uh, he even said, you know, the military is losing the war. I mean, that's not the way that it looks, or at least that it's reported right. outside in the, in the wider world. Uh, yet he sees the future. And this is the great thing that I think links democracy activists is their lack of cynicism, their belief that the future can become better through struggle, whether nonviolent, one hopes at, at times, maybe it becomes violent because the regimes are so committed to using violence. But I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that, you know, this week I've been lecturing on the end of the Cold War mm-hmm. because I'm coming to the end of our semester. And it's a kind of a similar situation where those hundreds of thousands of people in East Germany or in the Baltic states uh, or all the way across Hungary, Czechoslovakia, even down into the Balkans, they had no idea what the future would hold. They did not know the Cold War was going to end. They didn't know that Tiananmen Square would would not happen uh, in Eastern Europe. But they stood in front of tanks and they stood in front of barbed wire and they demanded democracy and it worked. And that's what I take from these forces of of resistance is their belief that the future is going to be better. You know, one of the things that we we learned from Myoyan is that while he's an idealist, while he's a true believer, he's also a politician. And he recognizes that Aung San Suu Kyi, as a politician, was likely to make some deep moral compromises in an effort to retain power. And he was blunt, I think refreshingly blunt, about the fact that she made a terrible mistake by pandering to the junta 
over its brutal repression of the Rohingya minority in Western Burma. And, you know, that showed me here's a person who has been through all the real political battles and still understands right from wrong and can speak directly about someone he clearly admires. Yeah, I think that he brought a kind of, you know, honesty and a and also a tactical savvy about what it means to take on a military junta. But I think the thing that I was really kind of inspired by is just this notion that uh, a young person in Burma facing a terrible uh, military oppression is imagining uh, an American-style democracy coming to his country, and he's literally putting his life on the line for it. And it's just a reminder to us, because we are so critical of the United States and with good reason for the ways in which it is perverting its own democracy, that for decades, the United States has, in fact, been a model and a beacon. Maybe everyone doesn't want to copy all of our difficulties as well, but it matters that many people around the world look to the United States for hope and for encouragement. So when the United States acts in the world to express solidarity with resistance movements, that matters. It makes a huge difference. It refuels uh, the energy of resistance movements around the world. It, it, we play an outsized role in the world that sometimes, because we're so critical of ourselves looking inward, we forget. Yeah, but it's also important to remember that there are so many different ways of building a democracy, building an indigenous democracy, building a democracy that actually supports the... The, the positive things about a social structure or or resists the residual effects of colonialism, which is, you know, one of the big challenges for any former colony like Myanmar, like Indonesia, like, you know, like South Africa. Yeah, there's no doubt that the current political and economic setup is a legacy of uh, decades of exploitation uh, under British colonial rule. Um and there really was never a transition to democracy, not even much of an effort to to make it work. The military swept in and has been exploiting that country ever since the late 40s. And this is a terrible legacy of colonization that so many uh, nations in the developing world have had to confront over the last half century. Right, right. And let's not forget that um, American and Western European companies have been deeply invested in the status quo in Myanmar ever since as well. I mean, you know, Royal Dutch Shell has been a real villain in that country uh, and has pretty much uh, stood up against any major international efforts to uh, instill real real democratic change in that country. And, you know, and this is one of our big challenges when we talk about real politics and we talk about its connection to democracy is that, you know, sometimes we do have to face where the power lies and, and call out the misapplication, the brutal application of power, often by non-state actors like big global corporations. That's all for today's show. Coming up before the winter break, we have one more installment in our series on hotspots around the world. It'll be all about that continuing struggle for democracy in Eastern Europe. Polish riot police fired tear gas and unleashed water cannon on migrants after they were pelted with stones, showering refugees already suffering in sub-freezing temperatures. In the meantime, please catch up on anything you missed this season. We had some great episodes on the fallout from the war in Afghanistan and a bunch of stories from various fine states here at home. Check them out. And stay in touch. 
shoot us a tweet at DND Podcast. That's D I N D Podcast. Share us on social media and find much more on our webpage, dindanger.org. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Sydney Halliman edits the show. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Special thanks this time to our UVA colleagues, Steve Parks and Eric Brown. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. This show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Until next time. Thank you.